Who do you think you are? You can't do that. It'll never work. No one cares what you have to say. You're just a fraud and an idiot. Ah, the cruel blurtings of the inner critic. Who knows any of these? And you'll likely have your own variations. I have coached hundreds of senior leaders in my 15 years as an executive coach. And on reflection, I'm pretty sure that everyone has had a critical inner voice. The severity varies, of course, but the inner critic often shows up in our coaching sessions. Often I'm asked, can we get rid of our inner critic? Nope, sorry, it's riding sidecar with us for the journey, but we can find ways to coexist with it more peacefully. And that's exactly where we are going in today's episode. Dr. Irene Salter, Stanford-trained neuroscientist, is rocking the mic with me today, and what I love about our conversation is how she toggles between personal experience with her own inner critic, who's called Draco, by the way, and then she shares tips and ideas with her neuroscience hat on. Um, do neuroscientists wear hats? Probably lab coats. Okay, so before we cannonball in, welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. This is a show for high achievers whose lives look shiny and impressive on the outside, but inside, they're secretly exhausted, bored, and riddled with the vitriolic commentary of their inner critic. And I feel you because I've been there too. I want to give you the conversations, insights, and tools that I wish I'd had in a relentless job being a people pleaser and perfectionist. And I learned the hard way via severe burnout, so hopefully you don't have to. I drop us into today's conversation as Irene shares where her overachiever, good girl, people pleaser tendencies started back in the day. Ready? Let's dive in. I was the eldest daughter of this, you know, Chinese immigrants, which put a lot of pressure on being the like rising star of the family and achievement was just about everything. So it was all about how do you get the good grades? How do you be top of the class? How do you stand out academically without standing out in other ways? So it was never about being on the stage or about, you know, showing off, you have to be super modest and super quiet and super obedient and always the good girl and then achieve, 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 achieve. And so I think a lot of that perfectionism and people pleasing and other things arose right around those middle school years when you start forming one's identity and then trying to figure out how can I ever meet up to these kinds of high expectations that my family had put around me. And at the same time, of course, I also had a lot of um, teachers who offered a lot of praise. So I listened to one of your episodes with the person who wrote Dopamine Nation. And in that episode, I heard so much of my own story in it because the exact kind of dopamine rush that my brain totally lived on was that praise from outside people. It was never from my parents. They never gave me that, you know, they had the expectations, but they never were lavish with the praise. It was the teachers who were. And so I just lived for the A plus on the assignment or the 
superstar. This was amazing. Great job. Keep it up. I lived for all of that. And I just kept my brain in that mode of addicted to that that kind of praise from everybody. Um, And it just kept pushing me to the next level of what's the next thing that I can achieve. So after I finished high school, I was admitted to Stanford University. So I go to Stanford. Stanford, get the A pluses, then on to grad school, on to master's degrees, and so on and so forth. Um, probably followed me up until, until up until my 40s easily. Quick sidebar, I asked Irene how this pressure to perform and the need for praise and validation showed up for her day to day. What was it like being inside her head? How did it show up for you as you start to be, I mean, I understand the way you explained it so beautifully for you as a young person. And I don't know for you, but my experience was when I got that push at home, it was, first of all, it started off when I was younger as like, I want to try to please my dad. And then when I realized that that was impossible and getting into the teenage years, it became kind of a screw you kind of a thing that... I'm going to use my achiever to escape. Like, this is my way out. And, you know, getting that lavish praise from teachers and in university, master's degree, PhD, getting that praise constantly, it it becomes something, as you said, that we can easily become addicted to the dopamine of it. And tell me as a, as a young woman, when you say when you were in grad school or when you came out of grad school, How did this manifest then? Because when you're a kid, you basically have no agency. You do what you're told. (laughs) Yeah. But did this kind of machine just keep going and you just that became who you were? Or how did that show up throughout your 20s and 30s? I would say that it internalized. So I had a voice in my head, probably actually two different voices, one of which was very much the checklist here's all of the goals, here's all of the different things that you have to do and do them all. And then I had another voice that was, that's not enough. You just didn't do it to your full capability. You should have pulled the all-nighter. Just all of those kind of nasty, snide, how could you possibly think that you belong here at Stanford? How could you possibly think that you do what all of these other neuroscientists are doing, that your research is shit? Like I had a lot of that kind of voice as well. So I had both of those kind of competing for my attention. And I think that that was the internalization of what I was bringing up from the outside when I was younger. I'm always curious if people have a key moment that comes to mind when they finally say enough. So Irene's intuition started catching her attention even more than the usual chorus of negative voices, which didn't go away, I should mention. Her inner knowing just started getting louder. So Irene was on track for a prestigious postdoc at Cambridge University, but life was lifing and it got complicated and she deferred for a year to travel with her partner. 
So outside of her usual academic setting, her intuition started bubbling up and she realized that she liked research and being in the lab, but she loved growing people and making an impact. So she turned down the Cambridge Fellowship and followed her heart to become a middle school teacher, something that fueled her passion. Her mom wrote in the family Christmas mailer that, and I quote, Irene has thrown away her PhD to become a teacher. Oof. Let's find out what happened with the negative voices in Irene's head. So those voices that I mentioned, the like nasty bully one, that one was still really loud and clear and it got super crazy right after I chose to go into teaching because that was so not big enough, right? I'm turning down this incredible fellowship, top-notch school, Cambridge, England, for teaching at a little tiny school in Berkeley, like just not good enough at all. So... Of course, the way that that plays out is I strove to become leader in all things. So it wasn't good enough to teach. I had to design curriculum. It wasn't good enough to design curriculum. I had to design exhibits at the Exploratorium. That wasn't even good enough. I had to become on the board of the school to help run the school. And then that's, I think, what also launched me into going to Chico State to teach and teach teachers is because making the little tiny impact in the little tiny school wasn't enough. It had to go to something bigger. It had to make a bigger impact. And while some of that was, I think, aligned with my true nature, like I am somebody who really loves to make a difference, the constant pushing to do that bigger and even bigger, and that's still not enough, even bigger. That part, I think, was the more destructive bit, and that led to the workaholism and working 60 hours a week and not seeing my family. And so all of those things, I think, stacked on top of each other. So yes, I was aligned with the things I love to do, but that bully voice continued to kind of push and push and push. Dr. Irene and I are about to get our lab coats on. Yes, that sounds much better than lab hats. And I ask her to hypothesize what is going on in the brain. Why do those old stories and beliefs actually turn into critical voices? What is going on there? Cognitive dissonance is when we do things and the thoughts inside of our head don't match or when there's some sort of discrepancy between what we're thinking and what we're doing or what we're thinking and we're feeling. So when things don't match internally, there's this cognitive dissonance. And our conscious mind tries to figure out ways to rationalize and make sense of that. So when you're talking about things are not good enough and we are pushing ourselves to the brink and really stretching ourselves beyond what any normal human could or should do, a lot of that, you, we, as people who do that, look back on ourselves and like, this is crazy and stupid and wrong, and yet I can't find any other way. And so we rationalize that and come up with stories that help us make sense of it. And one of the ways that I think my brain does it is by coming up with these like internal inner critic voices that give me context for 
why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not doing it because of me. I'm doing it because of this voice. So I think that that cognitive dissonance, that that uh, disconnect between what I'm doing and what I'm thinking or what I'm doing and the external reality of it is actually manifesting itself in these voices that allows my conscious mind to kind of have a reason or a rationale for it. So you know I like to get practical, right? I ask Irene to share a real-life example about how she started experimenting with the voices and how she got some control back. So the time that comes to mind is how I started to wean myself off of checking my email all the time. So I started being the principal superintendent of a charter school, and I didn't have training for this. Imposter syndrome was running rampant because everybody else that was in the room, all the other superintendents, all the other principals, first of all, they were all white men. And secondly, they all had had so much experience in the public school system. I was coming in from the university system. So a very different trajectory and a very different pathway. So they would throw out all these, I don't know, acronyms and ways of like running schools and and strategies that I just had no idea about. So I was back to being totally the bottom of the tier and hated it. And of course, those inner voices were super loud. And my compensation for that was I have to work harder. I have to learn more. I have to always be on top of it. I have to respond immediately once somebody asks me a question. And if I don't know, I'm going to research the hell out of it to figure it out and then be able to respond intelligently. So that first year of being a principal superintendent was hell. That was like me hitting rock bottom. And it didn't, you know, I ended the year with like a terrible personnel review with all sorts of like teachers leaving. It was nasty and horrible. Part of it, there's understanding and reasons for, but a lot of it just sucked. At that time, I realized that one of the worst behaviors I had was checking my email constantly. Like it was on all day at work. It was on my phone all day in the evening. And then when I came home, even though I had like a one-year-old and a, you know, five-year-old in the house, six-year-old in the house, I just couldn't be present for my kiddos because I was just checking my phone all the damn time. They would want me at dinner and no, I had my phone out and it was just constant. And I realized, I knew that cognitive dissonance thing. I knew that this was a behavior that was unhealthy and just nasty and wrong. But I needed to figure out what is it that I can do to talk back to that voice? What is it that I can do to help resolve that in a more easy way? And of course I go to science, that's my tendency, as a scientist, I started to do little experiments to prove to myself that if I put my phone down for 30 minutes, like even putting my phone down for 30 minutes was hard. If I put down my phone for 30 minutes, nothing's going to bro- you know, blow up. Nobody's going to give me a bad review. No one's going to claim that I'm not on top of it. And hell, guess what? It's true. I can put my phone down for 30 minutes and I can like experimentally prove to myself that that's okay. And that helps me resolve that cognitive dissonance. And it made the voices quieter. 
So then I tried to extend that time. Okay, if I can put my phone down for 30 minutes for dinner, can I put it down all night? Like, what the heck am I even thinking? I know, exactly, right? That face of like, ah! And so it was little by little. It was like little by little baby steps of proving to myself that I could do this and it didn't like blow up and things didn't get worse and people didn't start claiming that, you know, I wasn't enough, that that was the voice in my head, not the actual reality of what was in the world. And that was the path towards finally getting to a place where I had a little bit more balance. And of course, the day that I deleted the email app from my phone, I like I literally had heart palpitations. And by this time, it had been probably three years down the road, maybe four. And I was even starting to coach people. And one of my coachees, one of my clients, deleted their email app before I did. And so it took a client doing that step, who is also a principal, to make me realize I could do it too. And so when I started to resolve the outside behaviors with the internal talk, and made those match themselves with the external reality of like the actual evidence from my experiments, my little mini experiments, everything actually went okay. And I could prove to myself from the outside perspective that the world wasn't gonna burn down and that that voice was wrong. What is your inner voice insisting that you need to do or do more of but you know in your heart of hearts that this behavior or habit or thought actually isn't serving you. Irene recognized that her digital habits were harming her family life and they probably weren't doing her mental health any favors either. And I reckon she's not alone. So as a scientist, she ran an experiment gathering data of what happened if she went counter to the voice that said she had to be on top of everything 24-7, that she had to push harder, she had to strive more. I heard a stat last week that 50% of people check their phones, wait for it, in the middle of the night. Do we really need to be that on? By taking breaks from her phone, Irene actually realized that nothing catastrophic happened. She was actually better rested, more creative, more on the ball. Her behavior had been influenced, maybe even bullied, by the voice. And here's the thing. The voice was wrong. Now she had the data. Last week, I heard this term, popcorn brain, um, a phrase coined by David Levy, and he describes that our brain circuitry is basically popping like corn from spending too much time online. And I know you know that feeling too. It's kind of a fried state where you're scrolling mindlessly and you're not actually taking anything in, but your thumb just keeps going. That and also looking at an email or reading a page of a book and realizing you haven't absorbed a thing. I read those stats about phone addiction in America in 2023 that I was just referring to, you know, looking at your phone in the middle of the night and all. 56.9% of people say that they are addicted to their phones. I'm surprised that number isn't higher. 89% of people check their phones within 10 minutes of waking up. This one's scary. 27% of people use their phones while driving. And here's my favorite, and you'll never visualize your boss's emails the same way again. 75% of people use their phones while they are perched on the toilet. You're welcome. 
(laughs) So when the voice in your head tells you that you must be responsive 24-7 or you have to reply immediately, take a beat. Avoid popcorn brain. Such a good term. Okay, so we've got a practical action. Run experiments to gather data. You don't need to be a neuroscientist or have a lab coach to do that. If you've got digital overwhelm, for example, what if you tried putting your phone away during dinner? And then what if you tried putting it away and checked only once before bed? Or what if you didn't check at all after a certain time and responded to things in the morning at the beginning of your workday? Gather data and see if anything bad happens, all that stuff that your inner voice is warning you about. Another example, did you listen to Jenny Blake in the previous episode? If not, go back and listen. She's brilliant. So in a nutshell, Jenny was driving herself to exhaustion, listening to her inner voices that she had to push herself to get promoted at Google. She ran an experiment and she gave herself permission not to get promoted that year. She put in a little bit less effort and nobody even noticed. No one wrote her a bad review. She didn't get fired. No one noticed she had made this mental gear shift, but she did. Now she had the data points that she didn't need to bend over backwards. She could have more space and rest in her life and still perform. So I'm running an experiment on taking more breaks because the voice in my head says I should spend every minute knocking more things off my to-do list instead of taking a buffer between meetings to stretch or play with my dog or you know, step outside and take some deep breaths or do my legs up the wall yoga pose. And I should book my meetings back to back, the voice says, because that way I can cram in one extra meeting per day. Sound familiar? Actually, research from the Microsoft Human Factors Lab shows images of the human brain that's been in a series of back-to-back meetings, and it is so compelling. There's a link in my show notes. Have a look. So there's this lovely blue image of a fresh brain going into a meeting, and it starts to glow red by the time it's been in something like three or four meetings. A picture is honestly worth a thousand words. It really made me stop and think. So I've instructed my brilliant assistant, Ramon, to give me buffers between calls, and I'll step away. I'm a few weeks in now, and the inner voices went really bonkers straight away, saying, oh, you're being less efficient, you're leaving money on the table, oh, it just got so clutchy. But now, even a 10-minute reset between calls can shift everything. I've gathered enough new data that my inner critic has calmed down. Okay, before we move on to Irene's next and final tip for managing your inner critic, pause and think. What could you run a small experiment on? Maybe you're not going to take your phone to the toilet to avoid getting popcorn brain, even one toilet trip in the day without a phone. How would that be? Or what if you took a 10-minute buffer between calls? Have a go and see if anything bad happens. I suspect you'll be surprised. If you're a journaler, you're going to love this tip. And even if you're not, give it a go. Writing about a stressful event can take the wind out of your inner critic's sails. 
It's called therapeutic writing, which can lead to cognitive reframing, meaning you get new perspectives as you're writing, you process your emotions about the event, and you come to your own brilliant conclusions because nobody knows you better than you. So you spend about 20 minutes writing about something that's happened, or as Irene suggests, you could try an inner dialogue. Here's how. There's a strategy that I use with my clients that I utterly love. It's both great for inner critical voices as well as listening to your body, but you enter into what's called an inner dialogue. Have you ever encountered this strategy before? So you basically write a screenplay. So for instance, if I wanted to talk to my inner critic, my inner critic's name is Draco named after Draco Malfoy from the Harry Potter series because he sounds exactly like that. The, like, you're not good enough for being here. You don't belong, all of that. So if I wanted to have a conversation with Draco and I needed to slow down to listen to my body or listen to that voice and really understand and develop some compassion for wherever that's coming from, I write a screenplay. So I write down on a piece of paper, me, dot, dot, and I will write a question. So if I'm getting back pain, and recently I actually did this, I was very sleepless. Why the hell am I so sleepless? It's, hey, sleeplessness, what's going on here? Or if Draco's really loud, hey, Draco, why are you so loud right now? And then I'd write down sleeplessness, dot, dot, or Draco, dot, dot. And I simply put my pen down on the piece of paper and wait for that subconscious part of my brain to respond. Because Draco's coming from my subconscious and the sleeplessness, the body sensations that we're having that we're trying to ignore, that's all in our subconscious. It's not in our linguistic conscious analytical mind. And so it's giving that part of ourselves a chance to respond. So when I had this conversation with my sleeplessness, I realized that I actually was having some performance anxiety, that I had set up myself up to go to this conference. And I've gone to conferences all the time, but this one was going to be my last one. Like I wanted this one to be my last conference. And so I had put all this pressure on myself to end on the super high note. And so when I started having this conversation with my sleeplessness, that's what came out. It's me putting pressure on myself, having anxiety over this thing that I'd done a thousand times. It wasn't any different than any other conference, but I was putting pressure on myself. And I didn't even fully cognizantly was aware of it until I entered into this inner dialogue and I could on paper slow down enough to figure out what that sleeplessness was about. And then the sleeplessness got better. This week's Brick of Wisdom is to run experiments. Gather some data points that run counter to whatever BS your inner critic is telling you. I know it means well and it wants to keep you safe and, and small and, oh, bless its cotton socks. I understand its intention. However, you want to live a bigger, juicier life. So enough already. Run some experiments and gather some data. Will you really be seen as an idiot if you speak up in the meeting? Or if you say, I'm sorry, I can't come this time. Thanks for thinking of me. Enjoy. Or if you're not on your phone 24-7, will something bad really happen? Start to push back 
gather data. If you want to dive deeper into this, check out episode 27 on minimal viable productivity. I think you're going to dig that episode too. You can find Irene's details in the show notes and she will be back for a future episode on dopamine. So I'll give you a heads up when that's coming. And two things before you go. Who do you know who's really hard on themselves and might appreciate this episode? Thank you in advance for sharing. And before you head back into your day, could you please hit the follow button so you never miss an episode? I've got some really great ones coming up and I don't want you to miss them. Thanks as ever for listening and let's do this all again in two weeks.